Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1 with All Care Pharmacy. Discover a healthcare team that's always here for you at All Care Pharmacy, Ireland's largest community pharmacy network. Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1. 50 years ago today, a general election ended 16 years of Fianna Fáil power when Fine Gael and Labour, led by Liam Cosgrave and Brendan Corish, respectively, managed to combine to oust the sitting government, causing a major political stir. And today we're going to look at the significance of this election, the main players involved and its legacy. Professor Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD, joins me in the studio now. Good morning. Good to see you. So we're going back 50 years, 1973. Will you set the scene for us? What was going on? It was a fraught time. If you consider in particular the previous year, 1972, nearly 500 people had died in Ireland as a result of the Troubles. And that affected, of course, politics and society in in a much more general way. There was also a degree of optimism about the possibilities that were there in membership of the European Economic Community because the Irish electorate had voted to join in 1972 and we formally became members in, in early 1973. There were a lot of stirrings. It was a very young population. It's interesting that there, there was a referendum also in 1972 to enable voters to vote at the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Previously, it had been 21. Uh, and many of those younger voters, some 140,000 of them were very annoyed that they didn't actually get to vote in the 1973 general election because the new register was not in operation yet. There were also a lot of stirrings in relation to the status of women, the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. Uh, and there was concern about the spending and economic issues about the budgetary problems that were in existence at that time. George Colley was the Minister for Finance in 1972. And you had, uh, in terms of the political landscape, as you mentioned, Fianna Fáil had been in power since 1957. We'd had the transition from Eamon de Valera to Sean Lamas to now Jack Lynch, who was still Taoiseach. The Fianna Fáil party had been engulfed Uh, in crisis as a result of the arms trial of 1970 and again how to react to the outbreak of the troubles and the idea that there seemed to be almost an alternative government within a government when it came to Northern Ireland policy, controversy over Charles Haughey, Neil Blaney. So dissidents aplenty within that party. Fine Gael was also divided as a party. Liam Cosgrave's political career was actually saved because a bomb went off in Dublin in December 1972 as his party was preparing to go against him when it came to the issue of support for legislation, security legislation, the Offences Against the State Act. So again, that party was very divided too. And the Labour Party ultimately had come to the conclusion that going it alone was not going to be an an effective strategy because that was what they had decided in the 60s, predicting, hoping that the 70s would be socialist. It hadn't turned out like that. But clearly Fine Gael made the same judgment call. Despite all of the problems facing Fianna Fáil that you've outlined, they obviously did not feel that they had the support not to go into that pact with Labour. Oh, they didn't. There was no doubt about that. I mean, a lot of them had been scarred by the experiences of coalition in the 1950s, particularly 1954 to 57, which was associated with austerity. uh, And they were whacked then by the electorate. But they were also looking at their options in, in the early 1970s. What's fascinating about the 1973 general election is that for the first time they campaigned together on a specific programme for government. And their vote management is very effectively, particularly in three-seat constituencies, where because they had a transfer pact and they had vote transfer uh, going on, they were actually able to defeat Fianna Fáil, even though Fianna Fáil's share of the vote increased Mm -hmm. uh, in 1973. And they were able to take advantage of the single transferable vote under our proportional representation system. So they knew that combined they had 
a shot at it. And they managed to pull it off quite narrowly. Fianna Gael won 54 seats and the Labour Party won 19 against Fianna Fáil 69. So it's quite tight, but they manage it. And a 76.6% turnout, I see, in, in that election yeah. as well. So then it was called the government of all the talents. That was an interesting phrase. I mean, Michael McInerney, who was the political correspondent for the Irish Times, was, was writing about that as Cosgrave was preparing to put together his, his cabinet. And it's actually a reworking of a phrase from the 19th century in British politics. Way back in the early 19th century, there was a ministry of all the talents after the demise of William Pitt, uh, a coalition government that came together uh, between 1806 and 1807. So it was kind of a reworking of that. But it was also a reference to what was regarded as uh, a particularly interesting generation of politicians, including in the Labour Party and Fianna Gael, who had uh, come to prominence in the late 1960s, some of them in the 1969 general election. You're talking about people like Art Fitzgerald, um, but also in the Labour Party, Conor Cruz O'Brien and David Thorney and Justin Keating and people like that. Um, and Cosgrave had quite a self-deprecating wit uh, and he did wonder aloud whether he would actually find a place in the government given all the talent uh, that was at their disposal. Uh, but what was interesting about himself and Corish, the leader of the Labour Party, neither of them had a desperate desire to be in government or in power. Now, that might sound very odd and contradictory, but they didn't grandstand. And their priority was cohesion. They had a very nice way with each other. They had an ease with each other, partly because they weren't obsessed with the idea of power and mm. holding power. But they did, of course, want to, to build an effective government. Did that leave a gap in the fence, though, when it came to people in their parties who did want Power. Well, I mean, those parties were quarrelling anyway. You know, uh, I mean, it was interesting that Gareth Fitzgerald ends up getting the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, even though many expected him to become Minister for Finance, because that was his background. His background was in economics. But maybe Cosgrave was happy to see him gallivanting around Europe or Mr. Mm-hmm. Europe, as he became known, because yeah. it kept him away uh, fr- from trouble at home. Um, and, you know, Cosgrave's authority had been strengthened by the election result uh, and by the security situation, because he was very associated with a strong law and order line. Uh, and he insisted that a bottom line for going into government was that Labour would accept the urgency around security and the offences against the State Act. But, I mean, it, there was a point during the coalition government where the two Labour, the, the two leaders, Corish and Cosgrave, actually disappeared. And rumours and feverish speculation that there was a crisis at the heart of government and they were trying to resolve it. Um, the two of them were locked in a room, sharing a bottle of whiskey, watching the races at Cheltenham. Um, and they had that dynamic between them, both interested in the races. Um, and that was an era in politics where you could go home for lunch. Cosgrave used to go home to Temple Oak for lunch, uh, not for avocado toast. You know, it was a completely different era. Uh, and that dynamic was important, you know, the, the personalities of the two of them and how they managed that. But there were big, big personalities around the yeah, cabinet and, and table. Uh, you mentioned Conor Cruz O'Brien and I, I want to talk about him a little bit and his role in that government, a hugely controversial figure. Yeah, he became Minister for Posts and Telegraphs and one of the jokes of the era was that if he had concentrated on that, he wouldn't have created so much trouble. But he was also, of course, a spokesperson on the Troubles mm-hmm. and on Northern Ireland. And he had very strong views. He was defying, in some ways, the tribal gods when it came to the question of unity and the idea of the nation state. Uh, and he was very vocal as an intellectual, as a historian, as an academic uh, in relation to that. But he also politicised it. Uh, he often rubbed people up the wrong way. But he was also unusual in being remarkable frank uh, and an awful lot of the exchanges that were witnessed during that period in relation to Conor Cruz O'Brien uh, were very confrontational 
Um, and he, you know, didn't take any prisoners when it came to expressing trenchant views on the delusions around Irish unity. Um, and he was a more robust version, I suppose, of Gareth Fitzgerald, because Gareth Fitzgerald had published a book in 1972 uh, about the limitations of the monocultural state. So they were questioning you know, the traditional tenets of Irish nationalism and the approach to unity. And again, the backdrop there, and it was a horrific backdrop, was the severe loss of life as a result of the Troubles. So there were a lot of run-ins throughout mm-hmm. um, and a, a very strong view on the part of Conor Cruz O'Brien that uh, you couldn't be liberal when it came to the essence of the security of the state and the maintenance of democracy. Um, so he regarded a lot of the criticism coming from what he called the civil rights lobby as being misplaced. Okay, and he then, um, originally he was opposed, wasn't he, to broadcast censorship, but he changed his position. Oh, he did, that. yeah. And I mean, Conor Cruz O'Brien changed his position a lot throughout uh, his political career. His critics would have argued that he didn't subject nationalism or, or unionism to the same kind of um, analysis or assessments that he did nationalism. Um, and that, you know, that was a weakness in, in his argument. But he was adamant, of course, uh, that whilst there had to be respect for the freedom of the press, there also needed to be the power of the state to limit the access that apologists for terrorists had to to the airways. So he didn't introduce Section 31, um, but he amended it. Mm -hmm. And then he gave that interview, didn't he, to the Washington Post, which is a few years after the 1973 election, where he said he wanted to extend this beyond broadcasting to publications. And he said the Irish press was in his sights and that led to a huge... And and quite rightly, and we have to understand these debates about uh, the freedom of the media at that time, um, there were all sorts of questions being raised about the attitude to law and order and by extension what that meant for the way in which the media was covering the troubles. Uh, And the media was under pressure, not just from state, but also to try and, and give some space to the views of those who were involved. Um, they would have seen that as a duty and an obligation on their part. Um, so it was ver- very, very fraught. And obviously there were incidents during the period of that government in the 1970s generally uh, that created revulsion. Uh, and that created a climate of, of fear. But it also squeezed the space that was available for genuinely hardworking journalists to try and do justice to the complexity of the matters. Yes, so it all has to be considered in the context yeah. of the time is what you're saying. Richie Ruin. Take us through why well, Richie I mean, Ryan. Well, hilarious became title. Richie, Richie Ryan became Minister for Finance in 1973. And he actually addressed the Shannon at the end of 1973. And he said, Our entire future is threatened by a combination of rising oil prices, soaring interest rates and rampant inflation. Uh, that was the, uh, the combination that was causing great consternation for a Minister for Finance. The irony of him being labelled Richie Roon, that was partly about his determination to broaden the tax base. There was a lot of controversy about what became a very modest wealth tax, which had been part of the manifesto in 1973. And many of the well-heeled Fine Gael supporters were appalled at the idea that revenue would get anywhere near their excess riches. Uh, and Richie was fighting a very valiant battle at Cavanaugh's to try and get that through. Cosgrave came to the conclusion that it wouldn't generate enough to be worth the political storm. So it ended up a very diluted form, a very modest form, and you couldn't go near the, uh, the family home and livestock and pension rights and all that. But he was also hoping 
to get farmers into the tax net because farmers didn't pay income tax uh, at this point. The irony of him being labelled Richie Roon is that he also presided over the greatest expansion in public spending in the history of the state. And this was a combination again of, of Fianna Gael and Labour. Uh, spending on welfare tripled uh, over the course of, of that government. Now they were also chasing inflation and inflation actually went over 20% uh, at one stage. It really was rampant. Um, but there was a determination to ensure that benefits uh, and payments and uh, welfare spending uh, was a priority. And of course that, that was a Labour Party priority. just goes to too. show the power of, of the programme of, of Hall's Pictorial Weekly, the satirical programme which many people will remember because it was their characterisation. Well it was it, brilliant because you had Eamon Morrissey. Fingerless you know, gloves. And he and had the, yeah, the mittens <laughs> Uh, and he, he could only speak, of course, in front of a candle because of the blackouts. Yes. You know, and he was talking about the reopening of the workhouses. You know, and but the power of that versus yeah. what actually happened and was going on and what was on that man's agenda. It's extraordinary. Yeah. It, it is. And again, you can see because we have access to the correspondence now in the National Archives. And I mean, he was constantly in battle, uh, Richie Ruin. But he was also under pressure from TK Whitaker in the Central Bank, who was saying, you know, expenditure is running out of control. Uh, we don't seem to have a grip on this. And this was also, of course, about borrowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for current expenditure. But you also had Frank Kluski, uh, who was the junior minister uh, in the Department of Health and Social Welfare, who was responsible for welfare. And he was dogged in ensuring, you know, that the qualifying age for the old age pension was reduced from 70 to 66. He introduced an unmarried mother's allowance for the first time. Children's allowances were finally paid to the mother uh, rather than to the father. Uh, so he was fighting that corner and, and doing it quite effectively. And then on the prob- problems in Northern Ireland, the Sunningdale Agreement, which ultimately didn't work, but I suppose it was a start. Well, one of the challenges for that government was to get to grips with the British government of Ted Heath. Uh, Ted Heath has been described as a slow learner when it came to Irish affairs. But there was a breakthrough, it seemed, in 1973 with this agreement uh, for, for sharing power. Brian Faulkner was the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. Cosgrave had quite a good relationship with him. But there was a concern about the proposed Council of Ireland, which was oversold and which created fear on the part of unionists. And ultimately, of course, the power sharing uh, assembly and executive um, was over was really overcome as a result mm-hmm. of intense loyalist opposition and the Ulster uh, workers' strike. Uh, so it didn't work. Uh, but there was perceived in 1973 to be the opportunity for a breakthrough when it came to Irish involvement in a, a potential solution to this problem. Dermot, our clock has run out on 1973. Thank you very much for coming in. Dermot will be back with us soon. But that's it for today. Thank you for listening. The programme was produced by Rachel Graham. Kieran Dunn was our researcher. Louise Kerr-Ross, our broadcast coordinator. Liam Mullen was on sound and it's over to Louise.